Today we were going to continue and actually conclude our series on prayer, but with everything going on in our nation, we felt like Holy Spirit prompting us to stop, to pause, to lay down our agendas and our schedules and our plans, and to move in step with the Holy Spirit. And so today, instead of talking uh, directly about prayer, we actually wanted to address what's going on in our nation right now, and more importantly, how God calls the church to respond at this very hour. I think one of the most amazing things about Jesus was his ability to allow himself to be interrupted whenever he came across someone who was suffering, or someone who was in pain, or someone who was broken. And I think right now, at this very hour, we as the church need to be willing to be interrupted and even inconvenienced for the sake of all of those who are suffering. You know, the the Bible likens the church to being like a body with many parts, many diverse, different parts. And if one part of our body is wounded and we're not running to it, then we're not being the body that Jesus has called us to be. And so today, I want to acknowledge that there's many people in the body, many people in the church who are suffering, who are tired, who are oppressed, who are broken and hopeless. And it's our job as the church to run to them, to be with them, to stand with them, and to address what's going on in our country right now. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Um, I do want to admit Um, I I honestly feel like I don't have a lot of authority to preach on this. I feel like I'm still learning and growing, not just even as a pastor, but as a human being. And so today, I just want to say with humility that this is the best way that I'm trying to engage and lead our church. Um, But I believe that the Holy Spirit takes our heart and our effort and he, he multiplies it in such exponential ways. And so today I want us to open in a word of prayer. And so would you bow your heads with me? Would you pray? Holy Spirit, right now I just confess that my words are inadequate. That God, even some of the things that you have revealed through scripture that, that we preach, that oftentimes I fail to live up to. And so I want to first and foremost repent and just just admit and confess my inadequacy to speak on this. But Lord, I pray that you would use this broken teaching, these words, these few words that may not even do justice to what your heart is about. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would breathe life into it. And so would you be with us at this moment? We submit this time to you. Would you use it for your glory? Would you use it for your people? We love you, we honor you, and in Jesus' mighty name we pray, we say, amen. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. I think first and foremost, it's so important that we say these names in our Sunday gatherings, in our Sunday services. Three names that are added to a growing list of black lives who have been murdered unjustly in our country. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I saw the news. I read the headlines. I saw all the posts. I read the tweets. I saw the video. You know, this week I found myself completely tired and exhausted by everything that I've been seeing, reading, hearing, seeing, and watching. I was so exhausted. But I think what really broke my heart was seeing 
my black brothers and sisters share how tired and how exhausted they are. Tired of fighting, tired of trying to convince us that there's something wrong, tired of of believing and tired of being let down by the justice system again and again and again. And I realize as tired as I was, as the little bit of exhaustion that I felt this week is nothing in comparison to the exhaustion, the weariness, and the frustration of our black brothers and sisters who have been living this their entire lives. The difference is we get to shut off our phones. We get to turn off social media, but they don't get to turn off the color of their skin. And so as exhausted and as tired as you might be today, church, I want you to remember that our black brothers and sisters are exhausted for living this day in and day out. And the least that we can do is to continue engaging, to not look away, and to press in even further. How many times have we gone through this, posted our obligatory post, and then moved on business as usual? I will be the first to admit and repent for just throwing up a post and just moving on, even leading the church for sharing something and then just moving on as if we can go on with our lives. Today, I want to tell you as your pastor that we don't get to move on. And the posture that I want us to adopt is saying it's not okay until everyone is okay. This is what the church is about. This week, I've been reading a book that Pastor Brian actually recommended to us by Jamar Tisby. And he wrote this. He says, historically speaking, when faced with the choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict and in doing so created and maintained a status quo of injustice. I want you to hear me. I love the church. I literally give my life for the church. I mean, literally, I give everything. I die for the church. But we must be willing to be confronted with truth, even when it hurts, even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when it makes us uneasy. And the truth is that historically, the church has been silent, apathetic, and complicit in allowing racism and injustice to continue to prevail in our country. We have to admit and acknowledge that we have not done a good job in engaging in the fight against injustice, specifically racism. I think it says something right now that at this very time, There's so many believers who are vehemently fighting for their right to gather while there are unjust murders of black lives in the street that they're not saying a single thing about. I think it's telling that right now that there are people protesting, believers protesting the protests and the riots without acknowledging what these people are protesting and rioting about. There's something seriously wrong with that. And we have to acknowledge it and own it. This week, I was so disturbed when one of my favorite music collectives that write a lot of the worship songs that we've been singing in our community called Maverick City, how they posted a very senseless and destructive comment that someone left on their Instagram. That somehow, the, the basic sentiments of it were, just keep singing your songs, keep politics out of it. And I loved how Maverick City responded. He said, you can't have our songs without hearing our words, without hearing our stories. 
And I imagine that for many of us, we felt at some point that we, we felt like I give up on the church for this very reason. That there is a whole lot going on out here that no one is talking about or addressing in here. And so this gospel that my pastor keeps telling me is the key to life has almost nothing to say about my real life. About what's actually going on in our world today. And today I want to repent to you as a pastor, as a leader of a church. I want to repent on behalf of the church for not engaging and for misrepresenting our very God. Because I want you to know, rest assured that God cares about everything that's going on in our world, even when we've been too cowardly to speak about it. And God cares about justice. He cares about racism. He cares about everything that you care about, everything that's going on in our world. And it's us who've been so afraid to be uncomfortable and to lead us into places that are uneasy, that might make us lose church members. And it's us who have been afraid to go to those places when the gospel from the very beginning was never afraid, never afraid to engage with the world. So I want to repent, church, on behalf of pastors and on behalf of the church for not engaging, and for not taking precious time out of our Sunday gatherings, out of this sacred space, to be able to address and engage with these things. We need to do better. The church needs to do better. And so today, I want to take time. I want to take time to talk about racism and how it violates the very nature of God and of God's creation. Because it's important that the church at this hour talks about this. One of my favorite mentor, someone that I really look up to, his name is Mike Perkinson. He posted this very insightful definition of racism. He says, racism, one of hell's greatest ploys, takes humanity down the avenue of pride that elevates itself while it devalues another, in this case, a person of color. Racism destroys human life in every way because it dehumanizes the other and justifies itself because the other is not worthy of respect, let alone alone basic human dignity. Why is racism so evil and so destructive? The reason why it is is because it, it defies the very nature of God and his very purpose and desire for creation. You see, when God created humanity, he bestowed upon humanity that he did with nothing else in all of creation. He bestowed upon us his image. And so every human being is an image bearer of the divine. Every human being, to be human is to be an image bearer of the most high, to be an image bearer of God. You know, when I see my friends who are parents now, look up, look at their children. I see the look on their faces because when they look at their child, when they look at their son and their daughter, they see their own image, a reflection of themselves in the baby that they created. And it causes them to love them so much more. It causes them to look at them and say, he looks just like me. She looks just like me. And I think when we think about God, when God looks at us, the delight in his heart is like, they're my children. 
Mickey looks like me. Crystal looks like me. They look like me. They have my image. They represent my image to this world. And so what racism is, is a demonic tactic from the depths of hell to taint that very image, to destroy that image. We, as image bearers of God, what racism does is we no longer view one another as sacred image bearers of the Most High. We no longer treat one another as if we are children of God, as brothers and sisters. And racism takes the very thing that makes us human, reflecting the image of God and causes us to dehumanize one another on the, on, on, on the basis and the color of our skin. This is why racism is so demonic. It is a tactic straight from the depths of hell to get us to destroy one another and to destroy the image of God within one another. I think when we think of the word racism, I think we go to extremes. We think of the KKK. We think of burning crosses in the hood. But I think we have to acknowledge that while explicit overt racism still exists today, you'd be surprised that overt explicit racism still exists today. That there are other ways that racism continues to permeate in the shadows of our country that isn't overt or explicit, but it's in the shadows of our own souls. And it continues to thrive and grow. See, at the root of racism is the dehumanization of our fellow brothers and sisters to no longer view one another as image bearers, as sacred. This is why racism goes against the very nature of God. And the scary thing is this. Before you write yourself off and say, I'm not racist, we have to understand that dehumanization is actually in the subconscious. You know, I, I watched a Instagram live with Christine Kane and Dr. Anita Phillips this week. I highly recommend it. I posted it on her Instagram. And there are some studies that she shared about. There was one study where they set out to see that if the innocence attributed to children would be same across children of different colors. You know, when we think about children, we think of them as innocent, but they wanted to see, are there levels of innocence that change and vary when we go from someone who's white to someone who's black? And so they, what they did is they grabbed a group of police officers, they got them together, and they looked at white and black children. And studies showed that the police officers consistently overestimated the age of black children by over four years. In other words, they might look at a black child who's only 11 or 12 and think they're 16, think they're closer to adulthood. On the same vein, they consistently underestimated the age of white children, thought they were younger. And so what this tells us, in other words, that white children remain innocent longer while black children would lose their innocence at a much younger age. There was another experiment that they did with preschool teachers where they were instructed to watch a group of children. And they, this group of preschool teachers were tasked to notice and look out for negative behaviors. Now, the thing about this experiment was there was actually no negative behaviors that the children were actually perpetrating. And so these teachers are watching these children and studies showed through eye tracking technology that as soon as they prompted the teachers to look out for negative behaviors, that their eyes tracked towards the black child. 
And, you know, these teachers had no idea that this, this is what the experiment was about. But when they heard the results, they were devastated. They were torn up that they had this 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 worldview that dehumanized black children and they had no idea it was subconscious we have to recognize that racism is subconscious and the dehumanization of black lives even for some of us might be subconscious it might be there and we might not even notice it and so it's not just the police it's not just the kkk who have racism within them it's us it's these innocent sweet little preschool teachers it's you and i that continue to carry this worldview that dehumanizes black lives and it's in the subconscious i want you to think about this hypothetically imagine that a friend of yours was that person on television, on national news media, being murdered by the police? What's the first reaction that you would have? You would fall apart. You would weep. You would rage. You would cry out for justice. You would do anything within your power to make things right. Why? Because a human being Someone that you love, someone who is an image bearer of God just lost their life. An image bearer of the Most High was taken from us. But when a black man or a black woman is killed by police, our first reactions as a country are wait for the facts or what did they do or what's their background and their history as if that matters. Or what about black-on-black black violence? Why aren't people, people protesting white people being murdered by police every day? Why is it only black lives? Why is it that we completely skip over the devastation that a life, a human life, an image bearer of God was taken from us? It's dehumanization of black lives that causes this. And I confess that in the church, we've done this so often where we place so much more emphasis on telling black people that God commands us to forgive instead of acknowledging, addressing, and confronting injustice. We spend far more time preaching about forgiveness than we do about speaking out against injustice, about being allies for those who are oppressed and broken in our country. And there's something wrong with that. This is the subconscious dehumanization of black lives. And until we look within, until we see our black brothers and sisters as human beings worthy of the same life, dignity, and respect that we deserve, we will never destroy racism. Until we acknowledge that their experience is real, until we get rid of the buts and those other questions, until we say your experience is real and it's valid, this problem really exists, we will never be able to destroy racism. This is why racism is so demonic. It violates the very law of God's creation that every human being is an image bearer of the Most High, that every human being is sacred. Every life is sacred, equally sacred. And so today, with my very limited understanding, my very limited experience of engaging with this, 
I want to share some ways that I believe the gospel of Jesus compels us to face off against racism. And I want to admit, like, like I said in the very beginning, I don't believe that I have a lot of authority to speak on this. And so I encourage you this week to find sermons, find speakers, find teachers, find people that actually have the credentials, a long list of credentials, of experiences, of living this out, and hear from them. But today, I do want to engage. I think it's important, even if I don't feel totally comprehensive about what God calls us to do, I think it's important that we as a church try. And so today, I want to share a few things that I believe God and the gospel tells us to do when confronting racism, when confronting this worldview that dehumanizes black lives that's within every single one of us. The first thing that I believe that, the first way that I believe the gospel beckons us to engage is to search our hearts and to repent. Psalm 119, 23 to 24, famous verse, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Before we do anything, we need to search our own hearts and we need to repent. We need to, before you say, hell no, I'm not racist, search again. Maybe you don't go out and kill black people, but maybe have you ever had a bias towards someone because of the color of their skin? What about the prejudice that we hold on to against others? There are so many more facets to racism than going out and overtly attacking black people. There are subtle forms of racism that continue to permeate in our hearts. And so the first thing that we need to do is to ask God, search me, Holy Spirit, search me, examine my heart, show me if there's any offensive way in me, show me if there's any bias or prejudice or racism, show me if I have been dehumanizing my black brothers and sisters, show me, search me. The first thing we need to do is ask Holy Spirit to search us. I confess that this week, to be very brutally honest and open and vulnerable, this week, I found myself doing a whole lot of searching. And I remember times in high school where, you know, I went to an all-white high school. There was one other Asian kid in my class and one other black kid in my class. And then I went to a Korean-American youth group like many of you might have. And so I, I literally had zero black friends. And I'm so disgusted when I remember that as a young teen, that with my group of friends, no black person there, I remember we would just nonchalantly use the N-word as forms of endearment with one another, not realizing how ignorant and how wrong it was. This week as I was searching, I remember times when, when my own friends and my family said remarks that were so racist. And instead of speaking up, instead of correcting them, Instead of holding them accountable, I was passive. There's so many moments where I've held prejudice against other people. And so this week, it was so hard to do all this searching, but we must do it, church, and we must be honest about what we find, and we must repent. Even now, as I'm searching, I feel so compelled to repent for being apathetic, for not for choosing to look the other way, for not choosing to engage in uncomfortable conversations and situations. 
but choosing to look the other way. We must repent. Is there any offensive way in me? Are there any wrong patterns of thinking in me? Have I been apathetic? Have I been unresponsive to the pain of my black friends? And I think we, especially our church is predominantly Asian Americans. We as Asian Americans need to repent. We need to acknowledge that we have been complicit. We have been completely dead silent in the injustice perpetrated against black lives. And for so long, we have been sitting on the sidelines. The gospel compels us to do better. 2 Corinthians 7.14, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. In other words, repent. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them and will heal their land. If we want to see the healing of our land, if we want to see the destruction of racism in our land, we must first, as the church, humble ourselves and repent for our part in the sins of our nation. Not their sins, but our sins. Not their problems, but our problems. And before we point fingers, we have to ask God to point out within us any offensive way. This is what should differentiate the church from the world. Is that we must humble ourselves. We must own our part in all of this. And because racism is a sin issue, we all have stake in this. We all have a part in repenting for the sins of our nation. One decision I made very early on in my walk as a pastor is that whenever someone has been hurt by the church or hurt by church leadership or hurt by pastors, that I would apologize and repent on behalf of the church, on behalf of pastors, even if I never knew those churches or knew those pastors or was directly involved in perpetrating the hurt against them. I knew it was important that the church is my family. The church is my responsibility. And so I will repent. Even if I haven't done anything, I will repent and own my part in their pain. Why? Because the church is our family and the church is our responsibility. You know, imagine if you had a friend over um, at your family's house for dinner and one of your family members very explicitly and out of line offended your friend and hurt them. What's the first thing you would say to your friend? You would apologize on behalf of your family. Why? Because you are responsible for your family. We are responsible for the church and we must repent on behalf of the church. We must repent for our own apathy and complicity in the injustice perpetrated against black lives. And so first and foremost, we must search our own hearts and we must pray and repent. The second thing that I believe that we can do to respond that the gospel beckons us to do right now is to reach out and to listen. We must listen. Hear me, church. We must listen to the voice of the wounded. And we must not make excuses for their experience. We must not try to validate their experience, but we must simply sit down, shut up, and listen. To listen to their experiences, to hear their stories, to hear their pain. 
I think for Chris and I, we learned a few years back how important it is when, when things like what happened this week, when it happens, how important it is for us to reach out to our black friends, to check in on them and to say, how are you doing? I'm so sorry. I'm here with you. I hear you. I see you. And I want to understand. And honestly, I think for us, it was so powerful. One of our friends told us, you have no idea what it means when things like this are going around in the nation, even when they're not, to check in on me and to see how I'm doing. To ask and care enough to say, I see you and I hear you. You know, for me personally, I think the biggest thing that transformed the way I view racial injustice is I became close friends with someone who was black. And I didn't, you know, pursue friendship with them because I wanted to understand. I just, you know, I found myself getting closer and becoming really close friends with someone who's black. And I spent time listening to them, hearing their stories, their experiences, hearing what it's like to be black in America today, what it's like to have been black while growing up, how different it is from my experience being an Asian American growing up here in this country. And I tell you what, it made the world of a difference because right now, now when I see, when I see people being murdered on the television or on social media, when I saw George Floyd, when I see Ahmaud Arbery, I see the face of my friend. I say, it could have just so easily been you. It could have been you that was murdered for jogging. It could have been you being murdered for doing virtually nothing. And I think we need to reach out and we need to hear the stories. We need to understand, seek to understand, even though we'll never fully understand, seek to understand the pain and the plight of our black brothers and sisters. I think historically, and I'm guilty as charged as Asian Americans, we're notorious for staying comfortable in our little bubbles. But we have to open our lives to others, especially people that are vastly different from us. And I think especially in the church, come on, how many of you know the stereotype that I believe is actually really true that in predominantly Asian, Asian American churches, there are circles and cliques where it's very hard for people outside of Asian Americans to enter into that relationship group. We have to do a better job. We have to be willing to get uncomfortable to approach areas that are uneasy and new territory for us. We have to reach out and we have to listen. I think a large part of our community was really affected when when everything with COVID was happening and we're hearing more and more stories, increasing waves of racism against Asian Americans. And I wonder how many of us felt and wished that our white friends would have simply reached out to us and said, how are you doing? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this is happening. How are you doing? Tell me your story. Tell me your experience. How many of you wished that that would have happened when the rise, and it's still happening today, to this day, how many of you wish that someone reached out to you and checked in on how you were doing to seek to understand what your experience is like? We have the opportunity to do that for our black brothers and sisters, and it's our responsibility as the church, the gospel compels us to. I was so moved. One of my friends who's a pastor here in San Francisco, I'm just going to give him a shout out, Travis Clark of Canvas. I was so moved that when the rise of violence against Asian Americans and racism against Asian Americans was really headlining the news, he made it a point to reach out to me 
and say, is there anything that I can do? I want to hear your experience. I'm sorry. I want to acknowledge that this is a real thing. But if there's anything that I can do, you let me know, no matter the cost. And it was so amazing to see. I mean, I think his church is predominantly white, where he brought on Asian American panelists to share about their experience of experiencing racism and what it's like to be Asian American in our country. I think we should understand more than most. And I think now is our opportunity to really reach out to our black friends, to our black brothers and sisters. We have to remember that Jesus left the 99 to pursue the one. It's in our name. And we have to be willing to reach out, to pursue, to leave the comfort of our own space, of our own, you know, whatever we're used to, and to go out and pursue those who are really hurting, oppressed, and broken right now. We should never expect the wounded to come to us. We should expect us to go to the suffering, to the wounded, to the oppressed. The gospel beckons us to pursue those who are on the outliers. And so do you have black friends in your lives? And if you don't, you have to ask yourself a hard question, why not? And if you do have black friends, are you reaching out to them? Are you checking in on them? Are you willing to make space and give up your time to hear their stories, to hear their experience? By the way, they don't owe us any of that. And if they do share their experience and their story, it's an act of kindness and love towards us. But they don't owe us a single thing. But I think it says something when we reach out in times like these to show that we see you, we hear you, we want to understand, we want to fight alongside you. And so reach out and listen. Third thing, learn. Commit yourself to learning to educating yourself. Hosea 4, 6, the prophet says, my people are destroyed from what? From lack of knowledge. We can't do better until we know better. And we have to do our part. We have to put in the work, church, to learn, to educate ourselves. And I will be the first and foremost to repent on behalf of of not researching and educating on this issue enough where I've studied so many countless hours on the topic of prayer. I've only spent so much time actually studying and reading about racism and battling injustice. Hear me, church. It's not the responsibility of our black brothers and sisters to educate us, to hold our hands and tell us what to do, what to say, where to go. I want you to imagine they're already exhausted for living this every single day of their lives, and yet we're expecting them to lead the forefront of this fight. No. It's our responsibility to educate ourselves, to learn, to study the history of racism in America, to study how people have battled and combated injustice throughout history. You know, even Pastor Brian, when we were chatting with with him live on Instagram this past Thursday, he was sharing how important it is for us to study our own racial history and to understand where we've come from because it not only helps us understand our own prejudice and our own biases, but it helps us connect on a deeper level to the plight of those who are oppressed, those who are suffering racism. And so we must do our part. We must learn. And this is the beauty of the body of Christ. It's diverse. It's made of many different parts. And so if you want to learn more about prayer, what would you do? You would find someone who has gone deep in prayer and seek to learn from them. And so in the same way, 
If you want to learn more about how to be about social justice and how to combat racism, we must seek out and pursue those who have lived social justice well, who have not only talked the talk but walked the walk. And this is the beauty of the body is that there are some who are proficient in prayer. There's some who are proficient in social justice, some who are proficient in worship, and we're able to lean in and tap into those who are more experienced, who have actually lived out the very message that they're preaching. And some ways that we can do this is to follow social media accounts, to listen to sermons and teachings um, from people who actually embody the thing that we want to learn and grow in. And so church, we must do our part to educate ourselves and to learn. The fourth thing, and I want to share this with a very big asterisk, speak. I'm not just talking about on social media too. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. has this famous quote. He says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Church, how many of you know that silence is deafening? I remember in high school, as I shared, I went to a predominantly white high school. There's so many moments where I received racist remarks. Um, One particular time, we were in the cafeteria, and I remember this um, senior high school player who's white, him and all his friends, they were walking by us. And he said, watch out, chink. And I remember there was, it's almost like time froze as he said that to me. It's not even he said it. He looked directly at me and said, watch out, chink. And I remember standing there and it felt like an eternity and only mere seconds had gone by. But I remember that silence was deafening. You know, a few seconds later, one of my friends who was actually also white spoke up and said, hey, that's not okay. You know, actually stood up and spoke. And I remember feeling so supported, so seen. But I'll never forget those few seconds before he spoke, how deafening that silence was. Now imagine that your entire life has been silent. That no one, those people who say they are closest to you, who are your friends, who are supposed to be your family, who are supposed to be church with you, have remained silent. It is absolutely deafening. And so imagine having to hear that silence from people your entire lives who are supposed to have your back, who are supposed to love you, who have never been afforded that person, that friend who actually spoke up for them. It's important that we break the silence and speak. But I do want to say this. I think a lot of our generation has equated speaking and breaking the silence to posting something on social media. And while I think that's absolutely important, it is really powerful. You know, I think it goes so much further than that. It goes into situations where we're with our friends and they say something that's completely ignorant or racist. And we have that moment of tension. Do I make things uncomfortable and do I speak out or do I remain silent? And you know what, I'll, church, I want to repent because I've been complicit of this so many times. But it's in those moments that I think it's even more important that we have to speak, that we have to denounce racism whenever it rears its ugly head. Uh, understand this your post probably won't end racism i mean a racist probably won't read your post and say oh wow yeah they're right i'm wrong like of course it probably won't happen but what will what it will do is this it adds to the growing collective outcry for justice how tragic is it that it took an outcry a massive outcry from our nation 
to get the officer arrested, to get the person who shot Ahmaud Arbery arrested. It took a massive outcry, but how many other black lives never received that outcry? And so the results were completely different. So our voice adds to the collective outcry for justice, and it actually changes things. But the second thing that it does, and I think is so important, it shows our black brothers and sisters that we are standing with them, that they're not alone, that we hear them, that we see them, that we acknowledge this is a problem and that we're here and that we're speaking, that we will break our silence, even if it loses us friends, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And so it's important that we speak, not only just on social media, but in our own circle of influence. But I do want to say this. The reason why I put an asterisk on speak, I think right now there is this increasing pressure, and maybe you felt it this week, to have to speak right when something happens. You know, there's a big difference between being led by compulsion and being led by compassion. And the gospel of Jesus actually never causes us to be led by compulsion. But Jesus, every step of the way in his ministry was always led by compassion. What's the difference? Compulsion says, I have to post, I have to say something, or people are going to think I'm not down for the cause. I have to speak out because if I don't do it, I'm going to get called out. I have to do it because everyone's doing it. And this is compulsion that drives us, that is actually self-motivated and selfish. And so we are not to speak with that spirit, church. We are not to speak with that attitude. But what is compassion? Compassion says, I must speak because love compels me to do so. Because there are black lives, people in my life, black friends, brothers and sisters who I love so, so much that it compels me to speak and it's compassion that leads us to speaking and voicing out against injustice. Compassion says, I must say something because my brothers and sisters, I love them that much. And in an age where there's so much pressure to be quick to speak, I want to tell you, church, and give you permission, it's okay to wait It's okay to process. It's okay to take time to reach out, to listen, to hear stories, to hear experiences. It's okay to take time to pray, to educate yourself and to learn. It's okay. Do not be led by compulsion, but allow yourself to be led by the Holy Spirit and the spirit of compassion. I do want to also acknowledge that I know that many of you, myself included, sometimes are afraid to speak because we're afraid that we're going to say something wrong. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're trying, you're putting in the effort, and you go ahead and say something, but someone shares or corrects you or says, you're doing it wrong, or this is not it. You know, I for one have experienced that many times. And I will tell you that if you do speak, you will inevitably find yourself getting corrected at some point. It's part of the learning and growing process. But what, how you respond to that correction actually says a lot. Are you willing to listen instead of becoming defensive? Are you willing to try even after you failed? Are you willing to keep trying to learn and keep pursuing justice, keep pursuing all of this and speak out Even when you mess up, even when you get it wrong, are you willing to adapt and grow and listen instead of becoming defensive and getting offended by it? I think our response to correction 
speaks a lot about our humility and speaks a lot about how willing we really are or if we're self-motivated or really compelled by love to engage in the conversation. Our voice adds a lot. So speak, church. Speak, not just on social media posts, not just in empty words online, but speak in your own lives, in your own circumstances, in your own experience. I just want to share two more things. Take action. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Can I tell you, church, the hour of thoughts and prayers is not enough anymore. Thoughts and prayers, as well-intentioned and as well as good as our intentions are, they're just not enough anymore because faith is not only expressed in prayer, but faith is expressed in action. And for too long, we've masked inactivity under the guise of prayer. Where we said, I will pray, I will think of you, you're in my thoughts, you're in my prayers. But it's not enough because we see a gospel in scripture consistently that has always found itself expressed in action. The early church wasn't just about helping the poor. They literally sold all their belongings to help them. And Jesus didn't just say that he loved us. He died for us. He put action to the faith that he was expressing. And church, hear me, praying is important, but we must do more. We must take action. Dr. Anita Phillips in that, in that talk on our IG Live with Christine Kane says, Action is a love language. And I think it's one that we must speak in this arena of justice. We must not be like who James, in, in, the, in the book of James, describes as being those who say, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. We can't just pray, let there be justice, and not actually do something. And I know for many of us right now, we're learning what is it that we can do. Yeah, I know that I could speak up. I know that I could repost and and share my own thoughts and denounce racism with my own words. But what can we really do? In our education, we have to find ways that we can tangibly and practically take action. Just a few that I could think of. We have to sign those petitions. We have to make those calls to local authority and government Uh, For some of us, this might not be for all of you to protest, to stand on the front lines with our black brothers and sisters. And, you know, I think this is probably the one that we're all capable of. And it beckons us to put money where our mouth is, but to donate, donate to causes that are actually on the front lines combating injustice. You don't need to start your own nonprofit, your own movement. We can sow into existing organizations and movements that are combating justice on the front lines. And so will we church not just speak but put our money where our mouth is literally what we give because we have to admit that we cannot just pray we cannot just think good thoughts we have to take action and the last thing that i want to share about before we enter into time of response is we must pray we must do more than pray yes 
Thoughts and prayers aren't enough, but we cannot neglect prayer. Hear me, church. We cannot neglect prayer. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We have to understand that racism is a demonic force sent straight from the pits of hell to destroy us. Yes, there's a natural, tangible role we have to play in the elimination of racism, but we also cannot be ignorant to the fact that there is a spiritual component that is very real and very relevant as we fight against racism, and that is just as pervasive. We have to remember that racism's agenda is first and foremost spiritual to distort and taint image bearers of the Most High. It is sent straight from hell to destroy us, to destroy our black brothers and sisters, to destroy all those who are being oppressed because of the color of their skin. I think there's a sense to which we can over-spiritualize things, right? And so we're praying against principalities, but we, we fail to hold people responsible. No, those police officers that murdered George Floyd should be arrested, tried, and I believe convicted for murder. And so when we spiritualize racism, we're not, we're not neglecting responsibility. We're not letting people off the hook. But we're acknowledging that there is a component to this that is more than just physical or overt. There is something in the shadows. There is something in the spiritual realm that is happening. It is a weapon that is sent from Satan himself to destroy humanity. We must be careful not to over-spiritualize racism, but we cannot, church hear me, we cannot under-spiritualize this too. We have to remember our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is not in the justice system. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is not in a movement. Our hope is in Jesus because justice is not just a concept. Justice is a person and his name is Jesus. And so our hope is not in the systems of this world. Our hope is in a person of Jesus who radiates justice, who is justice himself, who longs to see equality in all of the earth for us to treat one another as image bearers of the most high and so church we must pray yes we must speak reach out listen we must do our part we must protest we must do all of this and that but we cannot neglect prayer and especially in this hour we must do more than pray but we also must pray Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. This picture paints, imagine the throne of God, that justice and righteousness are its foundation. But what does this look like? I want us to take us to Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want you to picture this because this is the foundation of the throne of God. This 
is justice. Is that around the throne of God, there's a multitude of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue in perfect harmony with one another who are expressing love for the lamb who is seated on the throne image bearers of God standing together in unity, in love for one another, and in love with the one whose image they bear. This is the foundation of God's throne. This is the very scene of the throne room of God, that justice is the foundation of God's throne. And church, in our fight, we have to remember that our vision, our end goal is not just the ending of racism, but it's seeing unity, seeing restoration and harmony among all people of different colors, standing before the Lamb of God, worshiping Him. This is the end goal. That's all I have for me. Um, but today, we really wanted to respond. And so, what we're going to do is, we're actually, after this is over, I'm going to close us in prayer. We're actually going to link a Zoom. And I really encourage you, church, to show up, to participate and engage. And we're just going to open the floor and we're going to pray together. And the two prayers that I want us to pray specifically, I want us to pray prayers of lament. I want us to humanize black lives, our black brothers and sisters, and really lament not just the the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, but I want us to lament the loss of black lives throughout history and how no one has come to speak for them or fight for them. I want us to lament our own complicity in letting racism continue. I want us to lament our silence as a church, our apathy. But the second thing I want us to do is I want us to pray prayers of repentance. I want us to repent not just for our own personal issues of racism and prejudice, but I want us to repent on behalf of the church. Even the church that right now that denies that there's even a problem, I want us to repent as much as it rubs me the wrong way and it pisses me off. We must, we must repent on behalf of the whole church, just like you would take responsibility if someone from your family wronged someone. We must take responsibility for our family, for our body. Because even if one, as if one body is one part of the body is wounded, the entire body is affected. If one part of the body is in sin, the entire body is responsible. So I want us to pray prayers of lament. I want us to pray prayers of repentance, and I really want us to engage. And even as this week goes by and the weeks go, I want us to continue to commit ourselves to standing by our black brothers and sisters in the few tangible ways that we know. Now, if there's, if there's a way that you feel compelled to share that we can also continue our fight and our solidarity with our black brothers and sisters that I have not shared, please go ahead and share it in the chat. Share it in our Slack. I want you to share it. We want to learn together. We want to grow together. We are the church in this together. And so church, let's do that. Let's show up. Let's engage. Let's not look away. As uncomfortable, as difficult as it is, Let's demonstrate love and be compelled by compassion to engage in the fight against racism. Let's pray. Yeah, Holy Spirit, I just want to repent. I want to repent 
for every offensive way in me. I want to repent for all the times that I've allowed my own prejudice, my own bias, my own racism to taint my view of image bearers of the Most High. I want to repent every time that I chose to look away, that I chose to be silent, that I chose to be apathetic, that I chose to be complicit when there are black brothers and sisters who are suffering around me. I want to repent on behalf of the church for choosing comfort and safety and neatness over genuine raw engagement, lament, anger, outcry. And I want us to repent, God. I, we repent for prioritizing so many other things over our black brothers and sisters. God, we need you in this hour. We confess we're not strong enough. God, we confess we don't know enough. We confess that we're not, we're not powerful enough to see change. But God, we need you right now. Our nation needs you right now. Holy Spirit, we plead mercy. We plead mercy over our nation. We plead mercy over all those who are suffering and oppressed. We plead mercy, the blood of the Lamb, over all the injustices we continue to continue to perpetuate. And so, Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you humble us as we seek you, as we turn from our wicked ways, as we turn from everything that we've been doing? And would you heal our land? Would you heal our land? We love you. We need you. Would you move us into action? Would you move us to engage? In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.